friends, and welcome to Conversations with Consequences. We are the ladies of the Catholic Association, bringing you witty and charming, in-depth conversation on the topics that matter to you with the leading thinkers and movers of our time. A special hello to all of our new listeners, as we now are part of the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network and working, as always, in partnership with the Guadalupe Radio Network. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and today I'm very happy to have our legal eagle, Andrea picciotti Bear joining us in studio. Hello, Andrea. Hey, Gracie. We also have our other colleague from the Catholic Association, Maureen Ferguson. Hello, Maureen. Welcome to our show. Hello, ladies. It's such a delight to join you. Well, Maureen is an expert on all things legislative and a longtime personal friend of our illustrious guest in today's show, Congressman Chris Smith of New Jersey. Maureen worked with Congressman Smith on Capitol Hill for many years when she was the lobbyist for the National Right to Life Committee, and we'll be using that wonderful connection she has with Representative Chris Smith so we can get to know him better. Well, but Gracie, before we turn to him, yes, Andrea? Well, I was just going to say, just like I mentioned last week, um, Maureen's the one to go to when you want to know what's going on in the Hill and when you yeah. n- want a great history <laughs> lesson about the pro-life mu- movement in the country. So it's, it's Maureen, a treat that she Maureen came. Maureen has her finger on every pulse, right, Maureen? Well, I've been around for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> and yet she looks 20. <laughs> Before we turn to Congressman Smith, Maureen, you recently published a piece in Catholic News Agency. It was January 31st, and it's called Developments in Washington. We're going to link to it on our podcast show page. It's an excellent piece, but I wanted you to tell our listeners about it because you pointed out that while everyone's fixated on President Trump's impeachment process and everyone's watching that very carefully, a lot is going on behind the scenes that uh, people like our listeners who are interested in these important topics really want to know about. Right. Well, it really struck me that just in the past few weeks, there have been some really significant developments that are super important to people of faith and to Catholics in particular, but there's been almost no media coverage about them because, of course, as you said, the media has been consumed with impeachment frenzy. Mm -hmm. Um, But while the Trump administration lawyers were up um, on Capitol Hill during the Senate impeachment trial, the administration policymakers were hard at work protecting religious liberty, and um, they issued all kinds of developments on the pro-life issue as well. Maureen, one of the things that I liked about your article and liked about what's been going on in Washington is that the administration is reminding all of the executive agencies of the importance of fairness, uh, especially fair treatment of religious groups. And and we all know that religious groups, faith-based groups, are such important partners in helping especially respond to the needs of the vulnerable and the weakest among us. Could you describe a little bit about the the executive order that came out and the reminder? That's right. So one of the new announcements was about religious liberty with respect to government contracts. And it said, it basically said that the government has to treat religious charities the same as they treat a secular charity when it comes to giving out federal grants. So we know, for example, that Catholic and other religious charities are about the best in the field of um, adoption and foster care, uh, working with immigrants, caring for victims of human trafficking. But under previous administration, there's been discrimination against these uh, these groups and religious charities have been disqualified from applying for federal grants. So the Trump administration just changed all that, and um, and there was a whole nother issue um, with the from the education department. Education that's secretary. That's the one. That's the one that really caught my attention, Maureen. Did it? So yeah. So education secretary Betsy DeVos issued this guidance saying that kind of reminding students that you have a constitutional right to pray at school or to write about religious subjects or your faith in your school projects. And you don't give that up just because you attend a public school or university. So we've been reading a lot about, um, you know, at universities, uh, they will defund uh, a Christian student group, for example. But this new administrative action says that religious student groups remain on equal footing with a secular student group. Maureen, you also mentioned um, incredible activity uh, in favor of life coming out of the administration, out of the White House. Could you tell us a little bit more about the details, uh, in particular the work on on reinforcing and and confirming our commitment to what's called the Weldon Amendment and what that amendment is? 
Sure. So again, just in the last couple weeks, um, there was a huge administrative uh, administration action on this. The state of California years ago had an abortion mandate that every health insurance plan, including a Catholic plan, has to cover abortion. So the administration has told California that's not allowed. And they also told the state of Texas that it was okay for them to defund Planned Parenthood, which had been disallowed by the previous administration. Now, that's the great work going on at the Department of Health and Human Services, right, at their Office of Civil Rights, made that notification to, to California. Is that right? That's right. And, um, you know, fabulous. also kind of lost <laughs> in the media frenzy. Of course, President Trump attended the March for Life and Vice President Pence uh, spoke to the March for Life via video from St. Peter's Square. He had an hour-long awesome, meeting right? with Pope Francis that, that got very little attention, but they had a great well, meeting. We were paying attention. We were paying attention, <laughs> yeah. and we were really enjoying that. But now it's time to bring in our guest. But before we do that, and we don't want to make his ears turn red, we I want to hear from you, Maureen. You've known him for over 25 years, Representative Chris Smith. What do you most admire about him? You know, I think what's so unique about him is his humility, I think. And he, he just has a real purity of spirit. And if you've been around Capitol Hill for many years, you know there are a lot of egos, a lot of ambition. Um, mm, but really? Chris Smith is so down to earth. It's utterly charming. And I would say his only ambition is the cause of human dignity and human rights. He's been a total workhorse. He's authored 47 laws over the many years he's been in Congress, um, which is an incredible number, actually. Um, I would say it's not an exaggeration that he's one of the most effective legislators on Capitol Hill. As we mentioned earlier, President Trump made history by attending and speaking at the March for Life this year and standing with him on stage was a longtime champion of life who joins us today. The Honorable Congressman Chris Smith has been serving New, York, New Jersey's 4th District since 1980. Welcome, Representative Smith, to Conversations with Consequences. Uh, thank you very much, Gracie. It's great to be here and with your two associates. Congressman Smith, we've already been bragging about you. We didn't want to embarrass you by doing it in front of you. But, um, but just to add a couple things, Congressman Smith was elected to Congress when he was 27 years old. No. And now he is in his 20th term, which means he's been serving for almost 40 years. And you wouldn't believe he's still a very young man. But he is he is Congress's he really and truly is Congress's greatest champion of human rights from the rights of the unborn, the disabled, women exploited by human trafficking, human rights for those living under oppressive regimes like in China. Um, I could go on and on, but um, we really want to get to our questions and hear from you. So let's start with the March for Life. And I think most people when they go to mar the March for Life are so struck with the young people there and just the overwhelming numbers of young people. And this year I know you spoke after the march to two different student groups, the Students for Life of America who have hundreds and hundreds of group and also um, a new group of students from the Ivy League schools. Every Ivy League school uh, brought students to the March for Life this year and had a conference afterwards. And I believe there were about 200 students there that you were that you addressed. And we're dying to know what did you tell them? <clears throat> well, thank you for setting up that second meeting, Maureen. Uh, it was a great meeting. Both were. Uh, but the, uh, the students were very, very focused on reaching out to their uh, fellow classmates, some of whom are at risk of the deceptive advertising uh, employed by the abortion industry. Uh, there are also some were thinking, because I talked to them later, about maybe getting into politics, because uh, I do see politics as a ministry where you don't wear your religion on your sleeve, but you take the tenets of your faith, particularly Matthew 25, caring for the least of our brethren, and, and trying to apply it in every situation imaginable, uh, which is why human rights, I think, is so important. Uh, they were very optimistic um, and, and very idealistic. Uh, they had a lot of questions, and uh, they had Several questions for Secretary Azar as well, who preceded me, who's an outstanding Health and Human Services uh, Secretary and has a almost a disproportionate impact uh, on this issue, particularly in the area of conscience rights. So he spoke about all of those concerns as well. Uh, but it was a very, very good um, – and I watched as I spoke, uh, and I watched as Secretary Azar spoke. Uh, they were riveted. They are committed. Uh, they are faith-filled, and they love the Lord, and they want to serve uh, God uh, to the best of their abilities. Uh, that came across uh, very, very profoundly. That's just beautiful, Congressman. Um, I was there with a number of my children as well at the march, and we heard your inspiring speech. Some of them were 
on my arms, on my shoulders, down by my feet. And one of the things as the, the legal eagle here at the Catholic Association that I was particularly interested in was in your speech you said that for the first time since Roe versus Wade, our federal courts are, and I'll quote you, seriously trending in the right direction. And I, I think you were right, but can you explain for all of our listeners, what did you mean by, well, by that? Well, for, for years, the courts have been the bane of the pro-life existence uh, and antithetical to all things pro-life. Uh, we would pass a law, states would pass a law, it would be declared and nullified by a state district court or a court of appeals mm-hmm. or by the U.S. Supreme Court. Even partial birth abortion, uh, the first time around, yes. was was overturned by the United States Supreme Court. Imagine that. So sad. Uh, a... a, a a hideous method where the baby's brains are literally sucked out, the baby is partially born, and the justices could not see clear uh, to uphold that. We had to go back and rewrite the bill Mm -hmm. to comport with uh, what I thought was foolish, um, extraneous type of issues, rather than the core issue of a child being slaughtered. Uh, the the courts, you know, and, and Donald Trump made the point because he is the one, he's the one who has selected uh, the, the members of the district appeals court and two members of the U.S. Supreme Court. Um, he is very serious about putting on the court men and women uh, who believe in strict constructionism. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I do believe they affirm the dignity of unborn children and all at-risk human life. Uh, 187, if, if my memory is correct, is what he announced. And the numbers years are amazing. To date. Um, and, and just the opposite happened during the years of Barack Obama. Uh, mm-hmm. One justice after another litmus tested to be as pro-abortion and extreme uh, on the issue, uh, and they're still on the court too. But when you get to the final decisions on legislation, local, state, and federal, um, if there are more pro-life justices trending in the right direction, uh, it, it'll be an engraved invitation to, to pass more laws that are protective uh, because we know ultimately they will not be overturned. You know, the court acts like a mini legislature far too often. Mm-hmm. Uh, one justice once said the law is what we say it is. Uh, that can be carried to an extreme. Um, the legislature should be able to protect life to the greatest extent possible. And, and going back to Roe versus Wade itself, which Justice uh, White called that exercise in raw judicial power when they created out of thin air a right to abortion right up into the moment of birth. Uh, I mean, it, it is, we have the most extreme, one of the most extreme abortion policies in all the world. Uh, there are only about six or seven other countries that are that extreme all imposed upon us by judicial fiat. And thankfully, uh, with Donald Trump making these picks, and, and frankly, the, um, um, the majority leader uh, in the Senate has been, uh, Mitch Mc, uh, McConnell, has been brilliant in mm-hmm. making sure that these uh, uh, members of the judiciary get the votes without all the impairments and um, impediments that are thrown up at him to get them on the bench. The atmosphere has been changing with the uh, with the legislation. I mean, the, the legislative bench. I'm sorry, not legislative. The judicial bench changing. Uh, but what about how do you feel about working in this administration compared to all, especially Barack Obama's administration, but even going further back? What's and, the difference for you? And I'll point out that Congressman Smith has worked with every president since Ronald Reagan, since That's he was right. elected in 1980, <laughs> which is yep. incredible. Um, thank you, Maureen. And you've been, and your husband, have been around working these issues for so many decades as well. And thank you. Um, there's no doubt <clears throat> that Ronald Reagan was very pro-life. He did sign as a governor one of the most uh, extreme pro-abortion laws for California. But he had his epiphany and became a pro-life president. George Herbert Walker Bush started out as being on the other side. He became pro-life. Mm-hmm. Uh, they did a lot of great work. But at the end of the day, uh, there were some gaps. For example, out of the five Supreme Court justices put on the bench by both Reagan and Bush, three of those five are pro-abortion or were pro-abortion. And when opportunities presented themselves to protect life, uh, they would be on the other side. And so inattention to detail, maybe, I'm not sure what it was, but I don't think that's happening now. Under Barack Obama and Bill Clinton, and I said from the March for Life previously, uh, right from the, you know, in front of tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, uh, that both of them were the abortion presidents. Mm-hmm. Their entire cabinet and sub-cabinet 
Uh, Ray LaHood was the only exception in the uh, in the Obama administration, uh, but he was the head of the Department of Transportation, so didn't have a whole lot to do with the pro-life issue. But everybody else, particularly the sub-cabinet, were litmus-tested pro-abortion, mm-hmm. uh, and sure, every day of the week, uh, they crusaded to, to promote abortion rights overseas, uh, linking foreign aid to how well or poorly a country uh, was accepting that message. Uh, and Obama, frankly, uh, you know, we have RU46 today. Mm-hmm. How did that come about? Bill Clinton sent his FDA commissioner, Kessler, to the company to bring that baby poison here to the United oh, States. And then they did sham tri- uh, trials, uh, very much truncated in their, in their how well they did uh, to prove safety. Uh, and they brought that chemical that first uh, kills the baby with two chemicals. The first mm-hmm. one, uh, uh, by, by starvation, the baby starves, and then the other expels the baby from the uterus. I mean, these are hideous practices. Yeah. Violent practices, and yet Clinton did that, followed by, unfortunately, uh, Barack Obama. Both of them clearly earned the title abortion president. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Conversations with Consequences with the Catholic Association, and we're talking with Representative Chris Smith of New Jersey about pro-life issues here in Washington and across the country. So the Democratic primary is now in full swing, um, and I think every Democratic candidate running for president and the Democratic Party platform, of course, have totally abandoned the most vulnerable among us. They've totally embraced abortion as just a routine method of health care. Elizabeth Warren says she wants to celebrate Planned Parenthood at her inauguration by wearing one of their scarves. Um, I mean, think about that, celebrating Mm. the nation's largest chain of abortion clinics at your inauguration. Um, There was also the recent question that Mayor Pete was asked. He was pressed, is there room for a pro-life Democrat in the party? And he basically said no. Congressman Smith, when I worked with you many years ago on Capitol Hill, the right to life really was a bipartisan issue. And there were so many pro-life Democrats. I remember votes on the Hyde Amendment where almost half of the Democrats would vote against tax funding of abortion or partial birth abortion. Again, almost half of the House Democrats, half of your Democratic colleagues used to vote against late-term abortion. Not so anymore, sadly. Very tragic that the Democratic Party has become the party of abortion. Uh, When I got elected, about 80 pro-life House members uh, on the Democrat side of the aisle, they were a very, very strong force, a very articulate force, men and women. And slowly but surely, uh, especially through primaries, uh, they have been defeated. uh, And in their place comes an even more extreme uh, pro-abortion Democrat. It's gotten so extreme now, as you know, Maureen, that even born alive legislation that would protect a child or a preemie uh, who is surviving post-delivery does not get the same standard of care that any other preemie would get uh, if he or she were wanted. Uh, So completely separated from mom, and the abortionists are against that. And we have tried in excess of 80 times to bring that bill up on the floor. They have opposed it. If there's a vote, they will oppose it. Uh, And Planned Parenthood, and we learned this from um, the Leiden tapes and some of the other things that were out there, uh, that, you know, children have survived sometimes for a few minutes, sometimes uh, longer, and some have even come and testified before Congress who survived right into adulthood, uh, the attempt to kill them by way of abortion. And um, I I, I can't believe, frankly, that our friends on the Democrat side of the aisle can't see clear to protect children born alive. Congressman, what what excuse do they use when when they're defending their vote? They don't give much explanation as to why, uh, but as they have given in the past, because these children are no longer uh, connected to their mom physically, uh, they, they trivialize the number, and they do that all the time, and to which we say, well, if that's the case, why would you object? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, but secondly, it's not a trivial matter. Uh, the abortion clinics, particularly Planned Parenthood and the others, are very, very closed societies. Uh, we know from the undercover tapes that uh, uh, um, uh, uh, Live Action had done that, that you know, they are willing to support sex selection abor- abortion, mm-hmm. uh, wait until the fifth month, and if a child turns out to be a baby girl, she can be aborted. <clears throat> That's where sex discrimination begins in the womb when, when you're willing to say a girl, child, uh, that her worth... Uh, is predicated on the fact that she's a girl and she's devalued of that worth and killed. 
That's right. And when you talk about the number of abortions since Roe versus Wade, I believe it's 60 million in the United States alone in Roe versus Wade. And of course, about half of those were little baby girls. And probably more. Congressman, I I live in Virginia, just on the other side of the Potomac. And last week, um, my beautiful home state, uh, the Commonwealth, walked back a number of state restrictions that they had, regulations on abortion, um, things that were really focused on the health and safety of women, making sure that women were informed before they took such a uh, dramatic decision with such grave consequences. At the same time, in the heartland, in, in Kansas, there's an initiative going on, and it's it's a bipartisan initiative. Um, people on both sides of the aisle are trying to promote an amendment to their state constitution to talk about the protection of both mother and child. And and in a time when we're feeling, gosh, so deflated and there's there's not much hope, there's still these little um, bastions, I guess, of, of hope and bipartisan uh, agreement on the right to life. What do you think and how would you inspire our listeners on what they can do in their home states and with their representatives and their senators to remind them about the sanctity of life and defending the rights of both mother and, and child? Okay. Uh, there's no doubt that many states have passed protective statutes uh, that have saved many lives. Women's right to know laws or informed consent, another term for that. Waiting periods have empir- been empirically shown that just given that little gap of a day or two mm-hmm. uh, where, you know, someone else might be able to say, wait, think about it. It yeah. is a baby and we'll stand with you. We'll love you. We'll, we'll you know. All, and walk with you. And walk with you. Um, and it, what the states are doing, um, in some states, uh, particularly in the heartland, as you said, is, is extraordinary. And one of those bills, maybe even the Texas bill uh, that's now making its way to the Supreme, Supreme Court, uh, may lead to a further, uh, you know, uh, uh, trying to pull back on this abortion-on-demand mentality mm-hmm. or, or policy uh, and may ultimately lead to the demise of Roe versus Wade. I mean, Roe versus Wade was so wrongfully decided, um, yeah. and again, the baby's interests were completely uh, done. And as Maureen said, well over 60, 61 and a half million unborn babies. That's the size of the entire population of Italy. Of Italy, right? Right. Uh, killed oh. in abortion mills, and Planned Parenthood alone uh, has killed over 8 million kids in their clinics. Congressman, those you, the, and those are the ones we know about. There's many more right. that aren't tallied. That's true. Congressman, you chemical abortions, right? Medical right. abortions. You signed on to an amicus brief, which I found um, incredibly yeah. uh, well written, well researched, um, with powerful arguments. In a brief that was filed to the Supreme Court, in a case um, involving a law in Louisiana, right. uh, explain a little bit about what was behind um, so many. It was over 200 of your colleagues uh, signing on and saying there's a, a problem when something so simple in this case hospital admitting privileges for abortionists is is being questioned uh, under these rights talks of reproductive rights advocates. Well, one of the things we found is that the standard of care in abortion clinics it does not rise to the level of what a hospital mm-hmm. and a world-class healthcare facility would provide. And the mere requirement that admitting privileges be afforded, especially after we saw what happened in Philadelphia with Dr. Ah, Gosnell, where women died, children were killed, very late term, had their spinal cord snipped, as he called it, but women died because of this inattention to their welfare and well-being. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's a minimum that that kind of... Well, and Louisiana is is a perfect example of of kind of the most uh, ugly underside of the industry in that state. And, And to have the the goal to argue that they should not have it, they don't have to have it. Uh, you know, the, the culture of secrecy, yeah. secrecy, just like the culture of denial about what, what they're killing, which is a little baby, um, uh, is just... Well, it sure, is, it sure doesn't help women. No, it does not help women. <laughs> and we learned that from Unplanned with Abby Johnson. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I read her book. I quoted it on the floor in debate, which was not met with... with, uh, with Good for you. was met with jeers by the other side. Oh. Uh, but when I watched the movie, and, you know, there she is with an ultrasound-guided uh, device as the doctor is, is dismembering the baby through suction. And um, even though I've been in the movement for 48 years, I walked yeah. out of there 
stunned. You can't unsee that. Here's a right? baby being, yeah. and, and, and Abby Johnson, who ran a Planned Parenthood clinic in Texas for eight years, turned around uh, and became a pro-lifer and mm-hmm. a very powerful one in that. No, she, she's her incredible. Her voice is, is amazing. Yeah, no, she's, she rivals yours. <laughs> Right, so we so we certainly know the abortion industry totally exploits women. The early feminists talked about how abortion is the ultimate exploitation of women. Um, can you tell us a little bit about um, government policies? Like, what have you been able to do to promote alternatives <clears throat> for women, like adoption, of course, and support for pro-life pregnancy centers that are, of course, across the country, pro-life pregnancy centers, everywhere where people are anxiously waiting to help women in crisis. Well, the beauty of the pro-life movement, it loves them both. Mm-hmm. And the pregnancy care centers, uh, going way back to uh, uh, Birthright when the pro-life movement was first formed, uh, Louise Summerhill from Canada formed it, but now there's Heartbeat Internet. There's all these different uh, wonderful groups of women and almost all women who run them uh, who have an open door. They provide refuge for a woman with an unattended pregnancy, and they love them during the pregnancy and their baby and after the pregnancy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and many of the volunteers over time are women who have been helped, and they come back to help others. We have tax credits. Um, I actually began that in 1989 for a non-refundable, uh, 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 refundable, I should say, for, if, for middle-class in- incomes of $5,000 for non-recurring expenses. It's now well over $10,000, um, and we put it into the contract for America. So that helps to say there is an alternative as well, and there are many adoptive parents that are out there uh, who would love to adopt, but unfortunately, those children no longer live. Congressman, we're going to take a a short break, but uh, we want to come back and and talk about your incredible leadership on stopping another terrible scourge that's facing our, our society and our community, human trafficking. You're listening to Conversations with Consequences. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and we'll be right back. Conversations with Consequences, the weekly radio show of the Catholic Association. I'm Dr. Gracie Christie. I'm here with my Catholic Association colleagues, Andrea Picciotti-Bayer and Maureen Ferguson. And we're very pleased to have Congressman Chris Smith from New Jersey with us. Earlier in the hour, we spoke about pro-life issues um, and all his wonderful achievements and everything that's going on in the administration. But now we're going to switch gears and we're going to talk about another interest uh, of uh, the congressmen's and an interest of ours at the Catholic Association, and that's human trafficking. And this is an issue. It just it breaks your heart to even talk about it. And honestly, I think it's ignored by too many of us because it's just too hard to think about. Um, and so many people are still just plain unaware of of the extent of human trafficking, that there are 25 million people around the world being abused by human traffickers, most of whom are women and children, and a lot of them in our own country, right under Mm -hmm. our noses. So 20 years ago, before anyone even really heard of human trafficking, Congressman Chris Smith was working hard on this issue, and he authored this groundbreaking legislation, which was really the first of its kind to go after these traffickers and to protect victims. So last week, we want to ask you all about this, last week there was a big event at the White House to mark the anniversary of your bill on human trafficking. It was a big deal. All the high-level administration people were there, the president, the vice president, attorney general, Bill Barr, uh, Labor Secretary Gene Scalia, Health and Human Services Secretary Alex Azar, Transportation Secretary Elaine Chao. And the guest of honor, or one of the guests of honors, was Congressman Chris Smith because this was his law, and he has been a dogged worker on this issue, just a total workhorse on this issue for the past 20 years. So tell us about that event and what are the new developments. Well, it was a very encouraging event. I think President Trump and Ivanka, who spoke very eloquently, as well as Vice President Pence, um, are really – I mean, they've internalized the issue. They've made it a – a significant priority within this administration uh, in every single 
bureaucracy. One of the things we did in the Trafficking Victims Protection Act was say it's got to be whole of government. We have to have everybody, including DOD, Health and Human Services, HUD, everybody on the same page. There is an interagency working group uh, that meets frequently to talk about how we can further collaborate uh, to fight it domestically and internationally. And the numbers domestically is hundreds of thousands, mostly women and children, uh, as you pointed out, uh, who are trafficked. Uh, 25 million overseas uh, is a part of that. About 5 million of that 25 million, it's believed by the ILO, International Labor Organization, are sex trafficking. Uh, uh, increasingly, we're getting reports that little boys, not just uh, little girls, are being trafficked as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, you know, it's, it's, it's an outrageous exploitation. That, that all of us can do more about. And the private sector is stepping up. Situational awareness is part of, part of a major mm-hmm. effort. We began it in around 2010. So that flight attendants, hotel workers, everyone who might have any kind of contact uh, is, is recognizing and then reporting to law enforcement. And there's also a hotline uh, that, that is run by the Polaris uh, uh, Project that somebody can call into and get immediate help. Um, there's a T visa that helps those who come in from abroad so that they can get help here so they're not sent right back uh, to the exploiters. They can bring their families in as well because they often use their families um, uh, against them and said, we know where your little sister lives. If you testify against us, we'll go after her. Nah. I mean, that's the kind of thing that these horrible uh, organized crime um, as well as gangs are doing today and the outcome I've met with so many my wife and I were in St. Petersburg in 1999 and went with nine trafficking victims and listened for for about four hours and both Marie and I walked away just looking at their brokenness I invited mm-hmm. two to come and testify they did wow uh, and, and you could have heard a pin drop when they talked about their stories and we used that personal experience to say this is the face of trafficking and if we don't stop it shame on us and what President Trump had at his White House event were two trafficking victims, one from abroad as well as one from uh, Georgia, who told their stories. And again, you could have heard a pin drop. Oh, Congressman, evil. when people when people hear the word trafficking, they imagine that it, it has always to do with someone being moved, maybe across the border, uh, like they move drugs. They also move women across the border for to be prostituted and girls. But it also means also just modern slavery, right? Like yes, people in situations where they're bound against their will to to work for for wages that aren't aren't uh, surviving wages. <laughs> they're not right, surviving right. in order to survive. How is that true about uh, trafficking? Absolutely true. What we did was to provide new definitions. Uh, there's no such thing as a child prostitute. Anybody who's not attained the age of 18, uh, that person, male or female, uh, if there's one, just one commercial sex act, she or he are a trafficking victim. After the age of 18, there needs to be an element of force, fraud, or coercion uh, written into the federal law. And what we did in our TVVPA in, in 2000 was to say we want every state to have a model law like the federal one and certainly every state now in about 150 countries have a law that looks just like our federal law. On the on the sweatshop side, uh, the first conviction under the Trafficking Victims Protection Act uh, was a slave labor issue mm. uh, uh, in Samoa. And, and mm. you know, convictions were had. Uh, People were being compelled against their will uh, to produce goods. Uh, So it applies equally to sex and labor trafficking. And the beauty is we have a prison sentence that that is commensurate with the gravity of the crime. Up to life imprisonment for anyone who uh, uh, traffics a 14 or under, uh, 20 years for those who uh, traffic older than that, uh, forced fraud or coercion, uh, and confiscation of assets. So, you know, we really say you're not going to get the benefits of this terrible crime, and that is recruitment, harboring, transportation, and end game exploitation. Uh, so, more of our prosecutors need to do more on it. I recently spoke to a prosecutors' conference in Atlantic City. Uh, all the county prosecutors were there and said, We have good laws. Please go and make prosecutorial discretion. Go all out to make this a priority within your, your realm so you can put these people behind bars and rescue the women. Congressman, um, my family and I, we lived for a number of years until just recently out of the country in South America. And we lived in a small area that had a lot of tourism. And I remember on my way to the grocery store, there was a big mural that had been painted and it said, welcome 
to Quindío in Colombia, um, our children are here to live in peace and not to be trafficked. And I, every time I passed and I'd have kids in the car and it really, it hit me. They, they painted this mural because there was a reason behind it. And as we were preparing for today, I saw um, an incredible leadership role that you took in promoting what's called the International Megan's Law. And I wanted to hear a little bit more about what that law has and what its effect has been in making sure that perpetrators, especially of child sexual abuse, are known. Great. Thank you. Um, it, uh, Megan Kanka was from my hometown of Hamilton Township, New Jersey, brutally murdered at age n uh, seven in 1994. That led to the creation of Megan's Law throughout the country where child sex predators, sexual predators are put on a list uh, to keep them off the soccer. You know, once they serve their term, there's still a potential risk. Mm -hmm. And out of abundance of caution for children, we make sure uh, that uh, everyone knows, particularly in law enforcement. Uh, today, um, and it took me eight years to get this law passed, it passed the House three times. It was opposed by the Obama administration. Uh, but the International Megan's Law says we will notice any country that one of these convicted pedophiles are traveling to uh, so they can say, you're not coming in, deny that, make them inadmissible. Uh, and uh, we ask for reciprocity, tell us when they're coming in. There's a real large jail sentence affixed to the lack of notice. And the good news is uh, the Angel Watch program, as we call it, uh, they've already noticed over 10,000 uh, convicted pedophiles who wanted to travel, uh, and many of them did, but at least 3,600 of them were turned away at the border. Hmm. You know, we know that passports are good for 10 years, uh, but we have a, also in the law, there will be a marking that goes into mm -hmm. every law that's saying this person is on uh, the child sex registry list, the See. Megan's Law list, so that border security people, when they open up the passport, if yeah. they lied about their destination or went to more than one country, uh, they they could turn them away there. Uh, these individuals thrive in secrecy. Mm -hmm. So the less secrecy, the more light, uh, the more actions we take to mitigate their ability to, to commit these heinous crimes against children, the more kids will be spared. Have you received any data on the, the impact of the law? Uh, definitely. Over 10,000 have been noticed in two years alone. Uh, 3,600 plus have been denied entry, and we are working very hard uh, to get other countries to pass a Megan's Law and notice us when the predators want to come here. Uh, if you're just tuning in, it's now 38 minutes past the hour, and you're listening to Conversations with Consequences by the Catholic Association on EWTN Radio. We're talking with Congressman Chris Smith. And uh, we've just been having a wonderful conversation about all the effort that's been going on uh, at the federal level, international level, and within the private sector to combat human trafficking. So we really appreciate all of your leadership. Uh, I know that Maureen's got some questions more about different things that are going on in the administration, especially with the different departments, to kind of take at this from multifaceted levels. Maureen, do you want to raise the issue that, that you were concerned about? Sure. So in particular, I was wondering about the Department of Transportation a as part of this new initiative. Um, I know there's going to be a whole new staff person at the White House who will be the point person. I guess that person hasn't been announced who it's going to be. Maybe maybe you know. I don't know. But um, but what are some of um, what are some of the initiatives that, you know, just, for example, training transportation workers to identify victims who are being brought through great you know, question airports uh, there's been a great deal of training at airports Newark International Airport which is my state and yours uh, they <laughs> recently did a, 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 a teaching <laughs> of TSA and everybody else to spot a trafficker uh, flight attendants Delta is probably leading the way of, uh, in terms of um, you know ensuring that their flight attendants are, are knowledgeable uh, they don't want them to be vigilantes but if they see something happening tell the pilot and when they when they offload uh, and people are disembarking um, there's law enforcement waiting at the end of that gate uh, again taking the ability to do all of this in secret uh, will make all the difference in the world many hotels like uh, Hilton uh, and others are training their people uh, to be cognizant of of a potential trafficking situation in progress. Again, call law enforcement. And on the healthcare side, um, there's been a major initiative, mm -hmm. uh, uh, and I was at a 
a. Um, I was uh, there with you. Uh, right? I saw you. you, you <laughs> so I was inspired by you as well. Um, and, but the beauty of it is they're trading. You know, there was a study done in 2014 that found that 90% of the trafficking victims in the United States go to a healthcare site for broken bones, for rape. Or uh, ER, ER for visits. E and in the ER, 63% actually visit a hospital ER. And, and in the past, they would come in, get their physical situation remedied, and then walk out the door mm -hmm. and nobody and knew from lost. nothing. And be lost back to the pimp and to the trafficker. Well, that's changing and it's changing fast. And uh, this president uh, and Health and Human Services and Homeland Security are really pushing hard for more of this to train the healthcare workers uh, with a protocol that's all about situation awareness. Well, and I Congressman, wonder, there was um, that, that event that you mentioned, one of our colleagues who's not here right now, Ashley McGuire, coordinated and helped um, global strategic operatives to organize this event. And, and, you know, all good things come from Jersey. The pilot <laughs> program uh, is with a number of healthcare institutions in New Jersey, training healthcare workers, getting them to understand the red flags, and teaching them along with all these other community leaders, either um, at Homeland Security or their local law enforcement or FBI, so that this is a comprehensive group that, that uh, if a person's walking through the healthcare system, they're not going to be lost to the darkness when they leave. Exactly. I wonder it's all if we about could rescue. Get, it's all about rescue. You yeah. know. I, wa I wonder if we could get Planned Parenthood to sign on to some of this stuff and stop, well, stop the, protecting the studies, pimps. The study found that, that, that mm -hmm. a percentage had gone to a Planned Parenthood. Yeah. And again, this is where live action did some very, very yeah. exhaustive and investigative work. They found, including at a Planned Parenthood in a town that I went to high school in, Perth Amboy, yeah. that a fake pimp with a woman who claimed to be both of them coming, bringing young girls out of Central America, uh, and, and they wanted to get them back on the street. And the Planned Parenthood representative, and I watched it, I watched it several times, and other raw one, footage, yeah. you saw it as well. Mm -hmm. uh, they, they were they were t saying how they could get the abortion and get them back out on the oh, street, disgusting. rather than calling the prosecutor. Or and the these police. are minors, right? And these I are mean, minors. Many of them, no, they were reporting horrible. to be a 14, 15 year old, yeah, and it's girl. all on tape in Planned Parenthood. That's right, literally facilitating human trafficking. Exactly. And you know, one of the terrible things that happened under the Obama administration, HHS Secretary Sebelius, uh, by her own fiat, did a change um, in, in what the USCCB, the, the Catholic bishops, they had gotten a huge grant to help women coming in from abroad uh, get help as refugees mm -hmm. uh, who were trafficking victims. Uh, because they would not refer for abortion, she took the project away, no. took the money away, and gave it to two groups who did not have the capability or the expertise mm -hmm. and actually had to go back to the Catholic conference and say, how can we do this? They didn't have uh, a scope. Um, and um, one of them, because we call them, said that they would be referring to Planned Parenthood. Uh, uh -huh. and, I, and, I, and I testified at a hearing on this, um, an oversight hearing, and thankfully under Trump, none of that's, that's not the case. Well, and one no, of the, the last time, the last time I left the country and came back in, I was going to say that people are learning. I think they're being trained and they're mm -hmm. learning. I have a, I, I came in with my Asian daughter, and she was taken aside at immigration and questioned as to why she was with me and who she was, and I was very pleased. I, exactly. I told this story, and people were like, oh, no, you must have been so angry. And I said, of course I'm not angry. No, we want to make sure to all those little girls are question. protected. Exactly. Absolutely. Yeah. And also in the, um, in the airline, the steward, a couple of stewardesses asked me a couple. They asked her uh, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a soft way, is that your mother over there and things. So I was very pleased because it's definitely happening all around us. And one place it's happening that I'm very interested in as a Cuban from Miami is Cuba uh, is a very involved in trafficking their doctors and nurses especially, and they enslave them and send them out into the world to be um, to basically doctor and nurse slaves for usually other leftist regimes to take advantage of. What do you think about that? Uh, well, I think uh, Cuba has a despicable record on mm -hmm. human trafficking. Unfortunately, under President Obama, when embassies were open between the two countries, he artificially gave them a passing grade on human trafficking uh, in the euphoria of all the goodwill that he said was being generated and nothing could be further from the truth. Mm -hmm. The human rights situation is not abated. It's gotten, actually, it's gotten worse. But on trafficking, um, when we did the Trafficking Victims Protection Act, we established 
minimum standards, and they're very comprehensive, uh, of government complicity in trafficking. And if a country has a poor record, uh, they will be put on what's called Tier 3, and they're mm -hmm. subject to sanctions. There's Tier 1, Tier 2, uh, and there's a watch list. Well, Obama gave them a passing grade artificially. I held a congressional hearing on it because uh, he did it to a few other countries as well. Uh, it was, in my opinion, it was a betrayal hmm. of the trafficking victims, and I said it in the hearing. Uh, thankfully, uh, you know, and even the tip office people who, you know, recommended tier three for Cuba, um, they were appalled, I know. And um, the workers, particularly the health workers who are coerced by the, the dictatorship in Cuba to travel abroad and do their work. Uh, this isn't some kind of altruistic Peace Corps or, or something. Uh, this is all about coercion, and you better do it or else. And control, And right? control. And, and money. And, and they don't get the money. The money goes to the, to, to the, uh, to the dictatorship, to the Castro brothers when they were living. So mm -hmm. it, and sex trafficking, they have a huge problem with that as well. So on both counts, and even the tip report couldn't have been clear that they should have been Tier 3, Again, egregious violator, and they did not get that designation. That's Thankfully, they're, they're on that list now. Congressman Smith, I know we're almost out of time, but you mentioned the Polaris Project. Yes. Do you mind just quickly telling us what they do? Sure. Uh, the Polaris Project is a private NGO that got a huge, not huge, but a relatively <laughs> good contract from the U.S. government uh, to connect people when they call in. Uh, sometimes a victim who might be in a bathroom, just making a phone call, mm -hmm. and then they connect them with law enforcement, uh, tell them where they are, uh, and other help, uh, including faith-based. And they are very effective. Really? They have great people manning the phones. It is a 24-hour, seven-day-a-week um, uh, effort, and they have had so many young women saved because they called into the hotline. And blessed be God. Well, Congressman Smith, we are so incredibly honored that you were able to join us well, today. Thank, you. thank you so much for all that you do for the cause of human rights and human dignity. And if anyone is interested in finding out more about Congressman Chris Smith's courageous work, please visit his website at chrissmith.house.gov. Thank you so much for having me on. And now, as is customary, Father Roger Landry offers us a short and inspiring homily to prepare us for this Sunday's Gospel. This is Father Roger Landry, and it's a joy to have a chance to ponder with you the consequential conversation Jesus wants to have with us this Sunday. With unforgettable down-to-earth images, Jesus will tell us that we have a double mission with respect to everyone else, to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Notice he doesn't call us to be the salt and light of the church, because our mission is to go out and transform the whole world. Likewise, he doesn't say you must become the salt of the earth or the light of the world. He says you are, because by our baptism, we've already received this identity and vocation. Let's see how to live it by understanding better the images. When Jesus called us to be salt of the earth, he was meaning three things according to the uses of salt at his time. The first use of salt was as a preservative, preserved meat or fish from rotting. There's obviously no electricity in the ancient world and therefore no refrigeration. If any fish or meat was going to last in a sweltering Middle Eastern climate, it needed to be salted. This points to the fact that Jesus calls us to be his instrument to prevent the earth from going to corruption. We're supposed to keep the world and others good. We all know that there are certain people who, when they walk into a room, keep others on their best behavior not because others are afraid of them, but because they lift hires, uh, others to a higher standard by the way they themselves live. That's what Jesus is calling us to do. Second purpose of salt was to start a fire. At Jesus' time, and I apologize that this might be a little gross, but people would take animal dung, mix it with a lot of salt, and light it on fire. This would serve as charcoals in order to cook food. And it still happens today in many rural villages in Africa. What Jesus is saying is that we are supposed to be able to redeem almost anything, even turning excrement into something good and useful. And we're also supposed to be God's instrument as a fire starter. We're supposed to be easily lit and capable of lighting others up. For us to be the salt of the earth, that's one of our parts of the mission. The third and final function of salt at Jesus' time we've maintained today, which is to give flavor to the food we consume. 
A little bit of salt, we know, can influence a whole meal. We, as salt to the earth, are called to give flavor, to bring joy to the earth. So many in the world think that to have fun, they have to have a frat house atmosphere. Plenty of booze, drugs, dim lights, lots of willing members of the opposite sex, and other types of behaviors that only lead people to hangovers, methadone treatments, STDs, and other regrettable and preventable consequences. Jesus calls us to show what real joy in life is, to be people who are happy, who are truly blessed by living together with Jesus. It's the cause of our joy. For us to fulfill this threefold purpose of salt, however, we need to ensure that our salt doesn't go flat. How do we lose our saltiness? Well, salt loses its saltiness by having the sodium detached from the chloride. How do we? By getting separated from Christ, by other persons and things, by the cations of positive pleasures that are exaggerated, or the anions of negative experiences, worries, and the like. When we get separated from Christ, we begin to lose the three qualities our salt is meant to bring to the earth. He wants to reunite us with him this Sunday so that we can go out and fulfill this vocation. Second attribute Jesus describes of our mission, what distinguishes us from others, is that we're called to be the light of the world. Last Sunday on his presentation, Simeon called Jesus the light of revelation to the Gentiles. Jesus would later call himself the light of the world. Calling us to be the light of the world, he means that we're called to reflect his light. And he's sending us out to a world in darkness. Darkness of grief, of physical pain, of broken hearts, of depression, of ignorance, of sin. Jesus wants us to be a remedy for that darkness. In the Psalms we sing, the just man is a light in the darkness for the upright. And Jesus calls each of us to be that light. Our presence is to help other people see better, to see things and the most important things of all as they really are, and as the light of a fire does, to warm them with his love. For this to occur, however, Jesus says that we have to make sure that our light doesn't remain hidden under a bushel basket. Our light is supposed to illumine others, not be hidden because of a false humility or peer pressure or the shame to live as a Christian. Our faith is meant to be visible. There are some Christians who are afraid to live their faith in a public way, who succumb to a secularist intimidation to keep our faith private and hidden. Their acquaintances know far more about what they think of sports or the weather or politics than what they believe about Christ. While our faith is intensely personal, it's not supposed to be private. It's supposed to be a light for others. In fact, it's supposed to be the most noticeable thing about us. The first thing our family members or friends or fellow students or workers will say about us. That we remind them of Jesus. Jesus, who today, as we prepare for tomorrow, calls us to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world in order to save the world and lead it on the path to light and life everlasting, wants to give us all the graces he knows we need truly to live up to that vocation. He wants to give us his help to prevent our salt from losing its saltiness and our light from going out. Let us receive that help he awaits to give us tomorrow and respond with courage and go out to live as who we are by baptism and who he, with great love and confidence, constantly calls us to be. God bless you, you who are salt and light. Thank you, Father Landry. To hear more from Father Landry, check out his website at catholicpreaching.com. We hope you'll catch us next week when we talk with Ambassador-at-Large for International Religious Freedom, Sam Brownback. Listen to us every Saturday at 5 p.m. on your EWTN local affiliate or on Sirius Channel 130. You can also listen to this show as a podcast at thecatholicassociation.org slash podcasts.